What soul signs up for that journey? What soul signs up to say, yes, put me in a body that at 18 months of age is going to suddenly lose verbal skills and no longer be able to look my mother in the eye and be overwhelmed emotionally and physically and my neural inputs be completely overwhelmed for the years until society comes around me and begins to support my healing journey into my role. They can see their role prospectively. They're signing up for that journey. Want to truly be the best parent you can be and help your child thrive after their autism diagnosis? This podcast is for all in parents like you who know more is possible for your child. With each episode, we reveal a secret that empowers you to be the parent your child needs now, saving you time, energy, and money, and helping you focus on what truly matters most, your child. I'm Cass. And I'm Len. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. Welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets this week. This is Cass, and I'm so excited. I just finished being a panelist on Dr. Zach Bush's webinar entitled Autism Learning from Angels Among Us. And it was super special for me because I, besides, who cares that I was on the panel, but my son, Rye, was on the panel too. And this is the boy that they said, you know, might not talk. This is the boy that they said would only accomplish life skills. And you got to hear him. You got to see him. My son is pure joy. And Dr. Bush has been such a light for my family and such a mentor for us and just such a source of inspiration. And we just thought it'd be extra special to share his two episodes he did with us into one. So sit back, get your headphones. You might want to listen to this. I listened to Dr. Zach's words over and over again, because there is so much wisdom here. And his perspective is so different than probably most perspectives you heard. So I'm so excited for you to listen to this. Please, if you are touched by this, please share it with loved ones. Please leave a review. We are just wanting to shine a light for other families on their journey. And as much as you can share and review, more and more families will find this. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Autism Parenting Secrets. Uh, this is a extremely special episode because Katz and I created this podcast for parents of a child with autism, but we didn't create it because we wanted people just to listen to us and what we think. Our goal was to bring in the, the thought leaders and the true sources of inspiration out there who are doing amazing work. And there is nobody who fits that bill. I mean, the person we're talking today is on the top of that list. And we're just so deeply honored to have Dr. Zach Bush join us to be able to spread you know, his message, to share his insights. And uh, the, his bio, if you go to ZachBushMD.com, you will see his bio, you will see his long resume. I'm just going to boil it down to the essentials. First and foremost, this man is just a beautiful human being. Secondly, he happens to be a triple board certified medical doctor with a real deep knowledge and expertise. And on top of that, he is such a change agent. He is not out there talking and putting theory out there. He is actually being the change and starting initiatives and not-for-profit and really kind of just putting the power back into all of us to be able to be the change that we want to see in the world. So he's got a, a long number 
of topics that he can go deep on and really share phenomenal insights. And for us, though, he knows as well as anyone we've met the particular challenges that parents can face you know, in bringing in a child and just setting them up for success and overall wellness. So we're going to go and cover a lot of topics today, and we're going to let Dr. Zach talk, but we just couldn't be more thrilled to have him on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Zach. So glad to be with both of you and the whole audience. It's just a real thrill. We're just excited. And I just, the one thing that I know, having heard you speak many times, is there's something like 7 billion people here at the same time. And I do think that our kids, kids with diagnoses like autism, are truly here to teach us. That is a beautiful place to begin. The idea of a life being the animation of a body from a a long-lived soul is really fascinating to me. Certainly, we've built thousands of years of religious philosophy, and, and we've been peering into this with all of human effort for so long now trying to figure out what is spirituality, what what is the soul, what is trying to be expressed through these human lives that we live. And when you look at the scale of humanity uh, today, it's like you say, 7.8 billion souls globally. Uh, it's a just a stunning number. It's very hard to wrap your mind around the concept of of a thousand million, but to see a 7,000 million people. And it's one of the things that I was struck with again just last night over dinner with my wife. We were in a restaurant we've never been in, this Turkish restaurant, and they had this whole live video of streetscapes of of Istanbul. And and here's this incredible city, incredible history to it, thousands of years of architecture and culture, and, and I've never been there. And look at all the people walking around that I've never met and look at them all on purpose and look at them all touching each other and look at the kids holding their parents' hands and look at the elders, you know, hugging the young woman on the street. And it's just, I often wish that just for a split second in the day, we could glimpse the power of 7.8 billion souls in alignment on a planet instantaneously. And that gives me a sense of the potential of humanity as much as it also, of course, underlines our, our destructive capacity. And so with the uh, maelstrom that we've been over the last thousands of years, which is this consumptive, destructive, kind of you know empire-building concept of human society, human consciousness that we need to take over, we need to fight against the microbiome, we need to fight off the germs, we need to fight off the big animals, we need to kill everything that's larger than us, we don't get killed. This kind of fight-or-flight, behavior of the human journey has been so ingrained in us. And so now when we look at this moment of the the birth of a new millennia, with this next century being this first step towards a new possibility, and then we realize that there's indigenous wisdoms that have run for many of them for 600 to multiple thousands of years that have been predicting this moment, that there would be a cataclysmic change on the planet and within humanity at this moment. And that would be a transition from a species that has been going in in vicious cycles to a species that's flying straight for the first time. And I get very excited to know that indigenous wisdoms have seen this hope and have seen the possibility of this. And so when we take a look at that moment, when we start to close our eyes and float above the stress within our homes, within our families, maybe they're psychosocial stressors, economic stressors, health stressors, 
we just take a deep breath at the end of 2020 here and float above that for a moment with your eyes closed and look down at your family and float up a little higher, look down at the block that you live in and then the community you live in, the city, float up high enough so that you can see the United States or Australia or Canada or Mexico or Europe, wherever you're listening from, and then float up higher to that, that stratospheric level where you can see that, that thin blue line that separates Earth from the dark, vast expanse of vacuum space. And that thin blue line we back up from again and we step into the darkness of space. It's frigid cold there. there there's no impact of solar radiation there for warmth. It's near absolute zero. Uh, you would die instantaneously, frozen like an ice cube if you weren't protected by heated space in there. And so our astronauts floating out in space right now, our astronauts at the International Space Station, they're looking down on this, this fragile Earth right now. And in that, we can start to see the patterns of events and start to make a different sense out of them, and autism being one of them. Autism now, you know, moving from one in, th- one in 5,000 kids to one in 30 kids over the last you know, 40, 50 years. What is that telling us? It's, it's telling us that this is what we need as a species. We need autism. We need this to be part of the collective consciousness. With one in 30 kids, you know, remember we've got 300 million people just in the United States, but with one in 30 kids, you know, coming into this world, even if things plateaued right now and and we were still at one in 30 and 20 years from now, we're likely to be at one in three. But even if we just stopped at one in 30, those children will be the, the population of the United States. And so at that point, you know, you're looking at you know, over a million children, potentially 10 million, you know, in the United States with who are now adults with autism spectrum disorder. Why do we need that? And we clearly do because it's what's happened. This is our journey. The path has already been proven. And so we need autism in our environment. And so why? We can dive deep into that idea as to all the layers of why autism, what is it showing us about toxicity of our behaviors, our collective consumer behavior, our collective industrial behavior, our collective technologic behavior. But deeper than that, uh, the why, it's the who for me for first. Like who, what soul signs up for that journey? What soul signs up? to say, yes, put me in a body that at 18 months of age is going to suddenly lose verbal skills and no longer be able to look my mother in the eye and be overwhelmed emotionally and, and physically and my neural inputs be completely overwhelmed for the years until society comes around me and begins to support my healing journey into my role. They can see their role prospectively. They're signing up for that journey. Those are... And so I look at my own path and I'm just overwhelmed by the fact that my soul didn't have to pick that courageous journey. Uh, My soul had such an easy journey. And I feel a huge opportunity to express more grace and pour more resources into these souls and children for the ease that I've had. And then if we back up a little further and say, what is the soul that jumps into a mother that will have an autistic child? How courageous is that journey? How courageous is the soul that jumps into the, the father that will see his family taken to the brink of, of bankruptcy and often into bankruptcy out of the healthcare costs and the, the lack of support from the social structures at hand, the lack of education? Who jumps into the bodies of the grandparents of that autistic child to see their children beat down to severe exhaustion 
and to quit their jobs or to turn over their retirement to help support the this third generation of autism. These are courageous soul journeys, and each of you listening right now are somewhere in that mix, I'm sure. And so my hat is off to you, my deep reverence for each of you, the autistic children that are affected by this show and within this audience, the mothers, the fathers, the siblings. It is very challenging to be a brother or a sister to an autistic child, and I see those siblings so often being the greatest protectors over their siblings. They have an intuitive sense that parents don't have sometimes or, or have a different perspective that a parent could never have on how to increase the, the communication capacity and to be, a, to be a conduit of information, to be a translator for their sibling with autism. And so my hat's off to the siblings, to the aunts and uncles, to the cousins, nieces and nephews. These are family units that are being mobilized around autism, which is telling us something about what we need. We need families to be reunited over important things. Autism is one of these. And so it can be a real gift if seen through that different lens. And so I hope that each of you can start to look through that lens because there's going to be a daily tendency, especially for the male brain, to think that you're failing, to think that you're not doing enough. I want you to know that you're doing everything you can possibly do, and it is enough enough for your child even if it looks like that child is none of the support that you would wish for it has none of the social or educational support you would wish for that child uh, you know maybe you've gone bankrupt maybe you've lost everything maybe you just lost your home this year you lost your job this year everything that has unfolded is on purpose it's for the extremity of the experience of doing what you're doing right now for experiencing exactly what you are experiencing right now it is enough you are enough if you are broken right now, you are called to be broken right now. Your soul signed up for a journey into brokenness right now so that you can put yourself and your family and your child back together in a different model soon. And that's the promise of brokenness is that if you hold on with curiosity and a spirit of co-creativity with the universe, energy will flow to you. If you can let go of the tendency that we all have to shift into the victim mentality of why me it's there's no way out it's hopeless it's helpless that's your human mind acknowledging that there is no human solution here and i want you to feel that and know that there is no human solution for your child there is no human solution for you there is a spiritual calling for your child and for you and you've stepped into it and you are enough and isn't a big part of that to surrender to that concept, you know, because you can't just mentally embrace it. It's deeper than that. That's probably the answer to life itself right there is, you know, there's the, the cliff notes to a successful life is surrender motherfuckers. Like it's that intense. Like, you know, I, I can't put enough English language around the word surrender to tell you how important it is and, and everything else in my own life. I, I have had to surrender everything, including at moments in my life, surrendering the belief that I could be a, a parent at all. I saw a moment in time where I felt like I was losing my kids. I was losing everything I ever thought I was living for. And I was in a massive state of hopelessness, a massive state of desperation. I was in sheer panic, fight or flight state. And it was those same children that I thought I was losing that put me back together again. And what was happening is I was fundamentally changing my relationship to my kids and they were becoming 
adults at young ages and they were becoming souls on purpose, uh, not under the influence of Zach. And that's a, re- a relief. See if you can cut your children out from under the influence of you because they came here not to be your child. They came here to be a soul on purpose, to light this world up. And so the sooner at a youngest age possible, you can, as a parent, realize you are being called to be witness to these children, not to really parent these children, not to control the environment for these children, not to be their pathway. You are here to be witness, celebrate, see the beauty in your children and surrender them to the universe. What energies are going to come to them outside of your influence, outside of your careful OCD you know, effort for control of their environment because you want to protect these children that seem so injured. I'm not even convinced they're injured. I see children go from non-speaking to speaking without ever having to learn how to talk. So it's not like their brain has been damaged. These autistic minds are doing something in a realm that we don't understand at the neuroscience level. We don't understand at the spiritual level. These children are here doing something that is so mysterious and so bizarre Surrender to that. Trust in that. Trust in the mystery of what your child showed up to do in their nonverbal state, in their maybe pre-verbal state or verbal state or their post-verbal state. Whatever stage, understand that the the weak and and, vulnerable five senses that we attribute to the human is scratching the surface of what we can really sense and what we can really do. If we start working biophotonically towards one another to heal one another, to heal the spiritual journey of humanity as a whole, That's what these children are here to do. They're here to heal the journey of humanity as a whole. And so if we surrender into that. And we've witnessed, I mean, we witnessed that firsthand, what you're talking about. And as soon as we kind of got over our own shit that we were doing and judging and correcting and just let Rye be, like, you know, Rye taught himself how to read. (laughs) Basically, yes, we had speech, but taught him speech, but then taught himself multiplication. Like, he just innately knows so much that as much as we're empowering him to be that best version of himself, and, you know, yeah, he came through me, but he's here for his own reason. It's our job to support him to really thrive. And that's what, you know, our intent is for uh, the parents that we support is to help empower them so they can basically help their child thrive so they can then do whatever they're here for. Like what is those gifts that they're here to really shine for humanity? Rye is such a good example of a reorienting force, right? It's not too often or not too uncommon that we're in the exam room together and he's in the room. We're having a conversation. I can start talking to Ryan and we can have a fun conversation. He'll usually tell me something I've never even heard of or imagined. He's got some, so many brilliant little aspects of his knowledge base that blow my mind. And then we'll kind of fall into a natural kind of human adult conversation. And then Rye will just have enough of that. He's just like, this conversation needs to go a different direction. And he will interrupt us and he will take us in the direction we just had not been going. And if we back up for a moment and, and realize that Rye's sense of the perspective of a conversation is, has nothing to do with the information traveling through our words. His, I think he is seeing that group of his parents, a doctor, in a space that he feels safe. It's much more similar to something like church. It's a fellowship experience. He's there for the spiritual experience of being in fellowship in a safe space where he knows his parents are being supported and he can see that support and he's glad for that. He feels seen 
and he doesn't often seem feel seen maybe by the world. And so this is what he is experiencing in that space. He's not there for Zach's words. He's not there for to hear his parents' questions. Mm-hmm. Couldn't care less, really. He knows that the questions are missing the mark. He knows my answers are nowhere near the mark. But he knows that we care and we love each other. And he wants to see the three of us loving each other and embracing each other on this journey of humanity. And he's almost orchestrating that. Like, okay, you guys are taking this way too freaking seriously. Let's lighten this moment. I'm stepping in. Shake up the room. All right, there's the levity back. Everybody's laughing again. All right, you guys do your thing for a few minutes. And he'll shake us up again the moment we start taking ourselves or our perspective on the situation too seriously because we don't have it. We don't have the answers. We don't have the perspective. We're so two-dimensional because we've been trained out of it. We've been forced to let go of our intuition. We've been forced to let go of our, our real sense of self. And so Rai is a joy to as a reorienting force. And so in your family, it's interesting to imagine a situation where uh, the child is suddenly seen as a, a reorientation force instead of a disruptive force. Yep. No, no, no doubt. We see that he's the teacher. And I know going back to my frame of mind, initially, I thought I was going to kind of parent the autism out of him, right? To kind of teach him and to figure things out. And, you know, I think now I've landed where all I am, I could be a really super helpful and loving guide, right? I could be there an ally, but I don't have the answers. I know he's teaching me much more than I'm teaching him. And that just presence and that connection it does outweigh everything else because he sees right through the words. He sees through all that. You're absolutely right. And and I guess the question is how can a parent kind of get that concept even more? Because it's one thing to hear it, but I mean, we have been trained our whole life to strive and to keep going and to keep pushing. How, how does one, other than meditation or something like that, how does one put that into practice? Yeah, the I mean, the answer is it's a lifetime practice to to move that that in. That's not something that you throw a flip a switch on. I don't think. I, I hope I would love to think that we can get to a place as humanity that we could throw the switch and just be in a high consciousness state and be connected to source at, at the kind of level that these children come into the world with. But assuming it it remains a lifelong journey as it has been for for our two hundred thousand year history as Homo sapiens. The journey into that is, you know, you mentioned meditation. I think the whole purpose of meditation and mindfulness, obviously, is to come present in the moment. And to come fully present is one of, it's another way of saying absolute surrender. You have to surrender everything that's ever happened and everything you hope to happen to be completely present right now. And that's ultimately your calling, right? It's fascinating that what I just described sounds impossible unless you're four years old. And that's just how you live. When you're four, that's what you do. You actually don't stake anything on the past week. That's why we have so few memories of before kind of age five or six. It's because we haven't yet learned how to hold on to the past. And so we don't. And we're just speeding forward. The amount that we will learn in those first couple of years, we learn language, we learn you know patterns of behavior, we learn emotional communication, all the complexity of what we're learning demands full attention, be fully present right now. And do not, you know, for a moment, look back, there is no nostalgia in a four year old. You know, I'm, I'm struck by, you know, I just had an all staff meeting a few minutes ago, and, and all of these adults reflecting on what do I love about the holidays? Or what, you know, what are the, the my favorite memories? 
maybe that's good, but it's not what we did before we learned how to hold on to the past. We made those memories by being fully present. And so if we're going to be fully present this Christmas, what are we going to let go of? You know, it doesn't mean the past disappears or is irrelevant or is unloved or uncared for. It just means it's not relevant to today. And so, and if it is relevant, it's relevant in ways we can't understand. And so it's, it's different than trying to cling to that experience in the past to have a new experience today. We have to let go of all of that so that the magic that created those memories becomes possible to recreate today in a new fashion for a new future, for a new memory today that would be just as ingrained in our experience, in our soul journey, as that four-year-old was under the Christmas tree or whatever it is that you're remembering. And so come fully present and surrender the past. Try to let go of your emotional memory because it's the most traumatic thing that we have. Uh, the emotional part of the brain wraps around the memory center in the brain. So all we have is short-term memory in the brain. We haven't ever found a hard drive in the brain. We don't have a, a long-term memory storage in the brain, which is really weird. It seems to be stored peripherally. And so we seem to store all of our long-term memory out in our fascial planes, perhaps, which are kind of a, a separate neurologic system from our brains and peripheral nerves. It sits right below our skin. It, and it has this weird dynamic, you know, uh, electrical potential within it. And so maybe it's within the fascia, maybe it's within, you know, tissue itself, within the water structure of the tissue itself. These are some of the ideas that are out there right now as to where do we really store memory. But in the brain, when we go to access that, we usually access it through the emotional cortex of the hippocampus. And so the memories you are going to recall easily are those that are wrapped in emotion. That's why nostalgia or trauma or fear or guilt tend to become the dominant memories of our life. And it tends to define the narrative that we tell about ourselves, which of course dumbs our, down, our experience down radically, right? I'm so fascinated by the fact that we were neurologically wired to experience right now and not to remember the past very well, you know. But, you know, it's crazy because Rye can remember dates. He can remember basically everything. Hey, do you know where we were on November 12th? That, you know, like 2000 and, and you're just like, how do you do that? And that's part of these, part of the gifts that these kids have that and it's you know and it's funny because sometimes he'll tell us stuff when he wasn't even talking like you're just like how do you remember we had that conversation but yeah it's mm -hmm. it's truly amazing and, and tell me this is because this is fascinating with rye but tell me if i'm wrong but from what i've heard from him over the years he never tells me an emotional memory he tells me on november 12th we were here and we were doing this thing and there was no emotion attached to this thing we just happened to be driving on this road and i saw this sign True. True. And even if something was like when he fell and had to get stitches, it, he st he states it matter factly versus, and he doesn't cry like getting stitches. It was an event that occurred. Yeah. Yes. On yes. December first, I had stitches, and I was in the emergency room, and the doctor was wearing a blue hat. I don't know why he was wearing a blue hat, but then he also had like the stitches were actually in this little package that had this cellophane thing. Like he's so damn specific about his memory. Right. And the route you took to the hospital. And the route you took to the hospital. I mean, it's that, that level of exquisite detail. And so the thing about Rye that strikes me is he has learned to, or he has never forgotten how to access the knowledge field. When we are trained into an emotional state of knowing or an emotional state of experience and therefore an emotional state of memory, we forget all the details because we can't really store that memory until we access it via an emotion. 
And if we start to define our narrative experience that way, each emotion lasts biochemically about seven seconds, and then it has to be re-triggered to last any longer than that. And so what we're doing is we're taking these snapshots that are then warped by the emotion itself. Uh, they've done this a lot with eyewitnesses, right? You know, a crime happens and there's a car involved and you ask 32 witnesses and you'll get seven different colors of that car. And so it wasn't a black car, it was a red car. And half of them saw it as a white car. And it, it turns out it was a blue Honda. Nobody knew it was a blue Honda. There was people that thought it was a Chevy. Some people even thought it was a pickup truck. Like it's unbelievable how inaccurate, even in a big dramatic situation, our perception is because it's being coded by emotional filters that screw up the reality that we're actually experiencing. And so what are the emotions, mom and dad, today that you are experiencing that are screwing up your perception of your child or your perception of your child's journey or your perception of what that journey should look like or your perception of what the journey has been? Your emotions are screwing it up. And that's really, you know, sounds like an asshole thing to say, frankly, from some guy who doesn't have an autistic child to say that to a parent that does. You're like, how am I supposed to do that journey without emotions? No, the emotions should happen. They are natural. And they're actually holy. They're divine capacities of the human experiences to have emotion. And so I don't want to say that you should do it without emotion. I, just say, I want to say that there's an opportunity for you to disconnect the emotion from your entire narrative. Dive into the grief. Don't push the grief away. Hold on to that whole experience, all five layers of grief. If you haven't read the five layers of grief, please read those. You have to read those as a parent of an autistic child because you're going to grieve over and over and over again because change is always going to be happening. Change is going to happen to the friends you thought you had. They're going to, you're going to have to change the social group you thought you had. You're probably going to change the church you thought you had. I mean, it's going to get that intense where there's not an area of your life that's not going to change because of this autistic reality within your life. And in all of that change, you're going to have to grieve. We, we think of grief being associated with trauma and loss, but in fact, change itself requires that whole whole journey. And my wife has done a really good Instagram live recently on this with a woman who does a lot of grief trauma uh, counseling. And, and, and so understand that the changes in your life are inducing those grief patterns and to be present with those emotions. Don't push them down in the base of your lungs where you tend to store unresolved grief and then lead to all kinds of trauma, breast cancer and lung cancer and lung COPD, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, you know, chronic respiratory issues, blah, 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 all from unresolved grief. So don't do that. we got to let that out. But then to have the discipline to try to find the quiet space within your body. And it's commonly down like in the floor of the pelvis, like this safe, there's an energetic space where your soul sits down near the, the center of your pelvis. And in that space, if you can learn to access that, there is no emotion. Emotions happen up in these high energetic centers up top, up in your chest. And so sinking out of those emotional centers to become centered into that soul space and say, I am here. I'm enough. Okay, let's start with that. I am here. I am enough. And there is no emotions in this space. And what is the narrative that's real? And start to tell your narrative from that soul space instead of the emotional chest or the mental you know, brain. Those are dangerous places to tell your narrative. It's a dangerous place to program your child into with the narrative they're playing out. And so it's a very important thing because codependence is bred very quickly if you're up in your headspace or heart space with this journey and you will become codependent with that child 
that has been labeled as disordered or labeled as diseased, that child, the perception of that child leads to the belief that you need to plug in all kinds of you around that child to complete them or to protect them. And you've now stifled their whole energy field and who they are trying to become. And so having that energetic distance of, I honor you, I revere you, you are the teacher, I am the student, sitting there as you guys have talked with Rai, those are daily exercises because the world is telling you the opposite. Every second, the world is telling you the opposite. You're responsible. There's nobody else going to help. You have to do everything. You have to educate your child, solve for the the emotional and social deficits in that child's life. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I can't imagine. As a parent, I can't imagine the journey you all are on as parents of autistic child. I, I, my soul wasn't, wasn't on that journey, and I, I'm tempted to say I'm that wasn't a courageous enough, you know, I wasn't courageous enough maybe to take that journey, this this cycle around. And so I think you have a courageous one. (laughs) You have your own courageous journey. Different different courageousness. And I I see it as, um, I see it as on, on its knees. My soul is on my knees to each of you as souls. Your journey is, is of the bravest and, and highest calling. And it's separate from your child's and, and it's separate from your child's and it's separate from your child's. And so um, you guys, I think, are leading the charge with this podcast, with your own experiences to say, as a community, we need to start to support one another at the parent level, at the sibling level, at the parent and grandparent level. We need to support one another to break the cycles of codependence and emotional memory to become totally present right now, to learn what we must learn from autism so that we can move forward and not see a generation with one in three with autism because it's no longer necessary because we learned and we found out what we needed to, and the autistic children rose as a group, as a population, to teach humanity what we needed to learn from them. And if we're listening carefully and we pivot quickly, there won't be a need for a higher burden of this disorder in our in our communities. No, that's absolutely beautiful, and uh, and it does. It all comes down to just presence, acceptance, and it's a practice every day to just. Mm-hmm do your best and to get better and better at that. Cause it is, we know it's not a switch that you flip, but it is a practice that you can cultivate just to become just more allowing and accepting to what is. And it's amazing when you do be able to shed and become present, how connected your children then become. So where Rye started to where Rye is now night and day difference. He's doing everything. Everyone limited him telling us he couldn't do. We have clients who, you know, same thing with their, children who basically were told they were broken and now their kids are social, they're connecting, they're asking parents to hold hands together and take a family walk, you know, so things that, so it's not, you know, don't listen to the limitations of others, know in your heart, but I loved how you said, you know, it's not thinking with your brain or thinking with your heart, it's also checking in with that sacral space to really what is best as I move forward. I think, you know, it's such a beautiful description that you just did there. And I also want to honor both of you and what I've seen, because over the years of witnessing your family, I think it's maybe been six years or something now, I have to say in a weird way for all of the strides that the world recognizes in Rye, he's the only one that hasn't changed. I think the two of you have come light years in the light you bring into the world the passion for humanity and and other parents that you bring, the traumas that you've released from your bodies and your minds and your spirits, 
the sense of overwhelm that you were in when I first met you is gone. Like you guys are doing, making bold decisions. You guys are making extremely courageous decisions for your family to uproot, sell your house, rent, get on the road, take the family on a journey. Those are huge things for any family to decide. And to see you guys doing that journey, I, I can't wait for the road show. I can't wait for Rye to come into communities and uh, shed his knowledge and, and light into communities all over the country as you guys go on the road. I, I'm, and I'm not holding you to that. Maybe that's not the next step. But you know, there's there's just this sense of you guys are blowing the doors off of what a whole family has been told they could or couldn't do with an autistic child in the midst. And so not only is Rye finding his freedom, your family unit, and therefore your community around you, the extended family, the spiritual community, the larger you know, autistic community is going to watch the doors blow off as you guys become more and more joyful in your co-creative process. And Rye will find out was the conductor the whole time. And he saw the whole path. And he didn't need to change. He just needed to be heard a little bit better at times. But he didn't need to change because he already was connected to Source at a level that uh, for generations your family has forgotten. And you guys are reconnecting to a memory of who you are for reals and what you're really here to show up and do. And so I honor both of you as much as I enjoy Rise journey. I have um, I've seen exponential growth in the two of you. And I've learned much from that. So thank you for teaching me. Thank you. Yeah, no, Thank you so much. And we know that our change could never have happened unless we curated our environment and surrounded ourselves with people who did allow us to see things differently, who gave us that support, which is why we drive four hours to come visit you at the M Clinic and to experience the wonderful people there in your practice, because it is that right support of who you have around you makes a huge difference. Because otherwise, every parent, I think, starts in isolation. I'm going to do this myself. I'm not going to coordinate. I'm not going to be part of community. And the power is in the community and the people who you allow in. And there's no question uh, you have absolutely been a beacon of light for us. And we can't, from the bottom of our hearts, we couldn't thank you more strongly. So thank you very much. Beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be in a star field of human souls. And uh, it's one of them out there. So uh, I'm delighted to be shining in, in the same universe you're living in and uh, each of you are a joy. So thank you for for your journey and, and the vulnerability and sharing that journey with the, the groups of people around the world through this podcast is uh, a real service. So it's something that uh, only parents of an autistic child can open up and uh, have this level of vulnerability. That was part one of our two-part conversation with Dr. Zach. Here's the second part. Dr. Zach, I know one of the things that drew us to you in terms of uh, the light bulb that went off for us was, you know, everything seemed and all the people that we were kind of really listening to and the research we were doing was pointing to, hey, it's all about the gut. And this was 10 years ago when it was kind of a novel idea. And so we tried a whole bunch of things, but like all roads kept going to you focus on improving gut, getting the gut in balance and getting that corrected, that all kinds of things can improve. And that's why Cass dove into nutrition and food was such a healing part of our journey. But what would you comment on in terms of if someone's just kind of really trying to understand that concept and they're like, yeah, I guess the gut's important. Like, how could you frame it for them to really understand how essential is focusing on gut health? It's tempting as a consumer of healthcare or a, a parent of a child with autism, it's tempting to look to experts as they've been termed for answers. 
And I want you to know that nobody has answers, but we have observations and we're moving towards an understanding, not having an understanding. Uh, we haven't finished the human journey yet to say, oh, that's what it was all about. Oh, that's what nutrition is. Oh, that's what water was. Every year as scientists, you know, start peeling back the, the layers of the onion, trying to find the, the real core of the matter, whether we talk about uh, neurologic health, gut health, you know, cardiovascular health, you name it, we are just scratching the surface of our real understanding. And so if I could just encourage each of you every morning when you're feeling like you're at, you don't have the answers and you're, you're hungry for the answers, shake all of that off because the questions are there are actually disempowered at the beginning. You actually know within you everything you need to know for today. And your child knows everything they need to know. And they may not be able to express it to you today. And they may seem to be raging against the machine. What they're raging against is not the lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of answers that the kid is raging. It's against a system that's not allowing them to flow within the, the reality they are living in. And so it's a, when we talk about gut health and nutrition, it can be overwhelming as a parent because you feel like you're reading every book on GAPS diet on to you're trying to figure out is it bone broth or is it vegan or what the heck am I supposed to be doing? And, and it gets all overwhelming. Remember, these are this is a tapestry of experience. That when we start talking about the gut and nutrition, this is a tapestry of experience with a million pixels in it. And so there's no right path. There's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. There's a journey and your child and frankly, you as well, but your child is an assay machine. You know, our science lab boasts some of the coolest technologies out there. We can do science literally 40,000 times faster than I could just 10 years ago in my lab at the University of Virginia. And so 40,000 times in 10 years, that's really good. That's really exciting. We can do science so much faster, so much cheaper. And we can ask radical questions and get such fast answers now. But for all of that, it pales in comparison to a 70 trillion celled organism that is quantum computing in every single one of those cells. A quantum computer, by the way, the quantum computers that will be out within the next two to four years, the current chips are, are mind-bogglingly fast. Nobody even knows how to program on a quantum chip yet because their, their speed of computation is so dumbfounding. But within the next two years, we'll have a, a single computer chip that's functioning in the, at the quantum level, meaning that the, the spin of atomic structure or electron spin as the on-off switch within that digital board. That quantum computer chip is going to be able to do 10,000 times more computations per second than all of the computers on this face of the planet can do in 10,000 years or something like this. So it's like, it's one of these things and I've got my numbers zeros off or things like that, but it's like, it, it is such an insane rate of speed at which quantum computing is capable of making, you know, millisecond and, and micro, micro, micro millisecond changes and adaptations and things like that. And what we are starting to approach with quantum computers is the first semblance of what a single cell has been able to do since the very beginning of origin of single cell life on earth 4 billion years ago. We are just scratching the surface of understanding how one of those cells computes. And so when we create the fastest, smartest computer chip in them in history, there is no smarts, there is no intelligence. It's a series of on-off switches. There is no source there. There is no source of idea. There, no, no computer chip, no matter how fast, has ever written a term paper. <laughs> it takes a creative mind to write the term paper. And it turns out as we start to talk about the gut-brain axis, your brain is a CPU chip. It is like that complex CPU chip in your computer or the quantum chip we're imagining. And it is a quantum computer and it's amazing. The speed at which it 
finds patterns, creates patterns. The fact that you can glance left to right across a room and take in all of that data and instantaneously figure out everything in that room without even having to name it, without even having to think about it, you actually know everything in the room. And you can look out the window and look, you know, half a mile across the land, you can see the landscape and the horizon. You can instantaneously make sense of that entire thing. Speed at which you are computing is blows your mind. And that is just the brain. And the brain has never had a thought. The brain can only find patterns in creative experiences. And so the creative experience that puts information into the brain is the whole sensory system. And it includes your eyes and your ears and the sense of touch of your hands and fingers and everything else. But those senses of touch and those sensory organs pale in comparison to the two tennis courts and surface area of your gut lining. And the two tennis courts and surface area of your gut lining are exactly where you do all of your sensing. And so that is the ultimate sensory input system or the keyboard that would write the term paper is not up here. It is largely the gut lining. There's now understood to be more neurons in the gut lining. It's like 10x more neurons in the gut lining than are in the spinal cord. There's as many gut uh, neurons in the gut lining as you would find in, in the entire brain of a dog. And so this is an extraordinary center of neurologic complexity. But I just told you that this isn't the source of the term paper, that brain. So if the gut is the second brain, I would actually argue the first brain because it's simply telling the other brain what to do. But if the, the brain is the second brain and the gut is the, the first brain, where is the intelligence actually coming from? And in an extraordinary way, we're now showing that the bacteria within your gut are actually the thing that's typing on the keyboard. Your fingers are what wrote the term paper. But the consciousness that created the term paper, the ideas and the patterns and the experiences were all coming from outside of you. And so the outside of you that's actually typing on the biologic experience of what it means to be human right now and what it means to be sensing right now is largely coming from the bacteria and the fungi and all of this vast ecosystem that's typing on the neurologic endocrine system of your gut lining. That's amazing. And we've shown that if you eliminate a single species of bacteria, a single family of bacteria, you will lose about 90% of the serotonin produced in the body. One species. But we know there's 30,000 species of gut microbes on the bacterial side and some 5 million or 3.5 million, it's argued still, but I'm sure we're probably just scratching the surface, very confident north of 3.5 million species of fungi. And so that's not 3.5 million bugs. That's 3.5 million species of you know, organisms that are non-human that are creating this diverse ecosystem outside the human body, within the human body, as a continuum between those. And so what is the intelligence that we express as humanity? We are, when we are healthy, and when we are connected to Mother Nature, we are the CPU chip for all of Mother Earth. We are the sensory processing chip. We are the computing chip for Mother Nature. And so what we verbalize, what these children with autism are going to tell us is that when fully touching nature, when fully integrated into the field of knowledge, this is what I see. And your child, Rai, is an extraordinary demonstration of somebody who is tied into a knowledge field that is so vastly beyond that which I can access. He has intelligence that I cannot imagine having. We've shared in previous podcasts his exquisite recall. This date, this time, we were here, this is what was happening non-emotionally, that's my memory. That's what happened there. That's the knowledge field. 
he doesn't have to work to access the entire knowledge field of the journey of not only himself, I believe, but I bet he can see layers of all of humanity in there somewhere. And he probably can see patterns of behavior of the doctor who he interacted with for those stitches and everything else. And so he is seeing so many multi-layers. And so why is a child with autism overwhelmed with the sensory processing? Because they can see so much, because they are unfiltered, because they aren't dumbed down to the five senses. They are seeing the entire knowledge field. And that can be overwhelming to something as frail as a human brain that CPU chip is not keeping up with the speed of data entry. And so when we see a child start to improve with autism on the human level, it's actually that they're learning to put filters in place. They're actually seeing less of the, the field perhaps so that they can communicate. And I think they're willing to do that journey too. They're willing to let go of their full access to the knowledge field so that they can begin to communicate more freely. But the longer they're in a nonverbal state, the longer those children go without learning to speak, they're seeing so much that there is no English words to express what they see. When they start speaking, they simply start speaking. They don't, they're not like a, a two-year-old that has to go, ma, 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 da, 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 da. That's never how an autistic child starts to speak. They always say the first word without nuance, without any baby talk. They say the first word, which is usually not one word. They'll usually put three or five words together instantly, right? So the first time you hear them speak is, mom, I'm hungry. And you're like, mom falls off her chair, never heard the kid speak, and just said a sentence. They don't learn, they know. They access knowledge differently. They don't have to learn it, they can know it. And that's exciting. And so this autistic journey for our species, for those of us that are touched by an autistic child, we're getting a glimpse of the whole knowledge field. And the gut-brain axis is the neurologic substrate or the biologic substrate by which we start to access that information but we have to veil a lot of that knowledge thing before our words can start to express what we see. And so when your child is spending much of the day nonverbal, maybe stimming themselves, something like that, any of these activities that you not normally see, in, and then they go verbal for a moment, the moment they go verbal, they've put up enough boundaries from the knowledge field to be able to communicate with you as a mere human brain. Right. Then they might fall back into their space or they're taking the whole knowledge field in and they're seeing it all. They're seeing all the, the quantum experience, the real you know, multidimensional space around you that you, you have not been gifted or have been taken away the gift of being able to see yourself and they're in that again. And so when you see your child not in a neurologic state that makes sense to you, take a moment to think that is it possible this gut-brain axis is experiencing stuff on levels that the human journey has not yet given that the enough experience or language to for them to even express then they have to back up, they have to back up, they have to get back to 30,000 feet away from the knowledge field so that they can express something to you for a moment. And then they'll go back into the field. And so when your child looks most affected by their autism, maybe when they are most connected to the entire field. We were blessed because Rye's allergic to most foods. So we were very clean diet from when he was a year and a half old till current. But so many kids eat a lot of crap. And I feel like that will mess up their knowledge field when they have to process things that their body really wasn't truly designed to process. That's right. Yeah. And you can imagine the, the purity of that state. So if your child really is in this neurologic, you know, existential multidimensional state, imagine the influence of something like high fructose corn syrup or, you know, these other chemicals, uh, MSG being a good example. So chemical MSG acts as a potent neuro neurostimulant. 
you know, just fat, salt, sugar combinations and the right thing to give that cocaine response. And so imagine this entity that's already in this experiential overload for the human brain to even tolerate, and then you give them a stimulant, and that can come in so many different food forms. You have now put them on hyperdrive, and they went from overwhelmed neurologic system to now completely cracking, you know, dysfunctional. That's when you move from a quantum state of knowledge field, which sounds beautiful, but may be very difficult for that being to express, to a state of actual suffering. And so that's where I really have a desire in my clinic and stuff is to move children with an autism spectrum diagnosis to realize that's not a, there's no such thing as autism. It's just a word we made up to kind of describe their experience. And so here we have a quantum experience of a child who's in a multidimensional sensory perception state. And if I see suffering there, it's not because of who they are or their biology. It's because of the environment we've put them into. And so when we start talking about nutrition, where we start talking about the lifestyle of the home, the number of screens that child sees in a day, how many trees does that child see in a day, how many leaves does that child touch in a day, how much soil does that child touch in a day. If that child is unwilling to touch soil for the sensory overload, it's because there's a billion you know, microbes or 300 billion microbes per you know, pin needle head of soil. They're sensing all of that. And so how do you get them into a stage of being where they're okay coming in coherence with the microbiome of the soil. That can take some of these children a journey. Some children have a very a big aversion to nature initially because there's so much sensory experience to be had there. And so moving them more and more into that natural setting, both through their nutrition and through the air they breathe and through the things they touch, is going to move them back into a coherence field where they are they can be nonverbal, multidimensional, you know, all of this stuff, but not suffering. And so when we see suffering, we have to take a moment to really ask, is the child's actual biologic, you know, innate condition creating that suffering? And I think I find over and over and over again in clinic, it's not. That suffering is not coming from within. It's coming from without. And nutrition is one of the biggest spaces that we run into this. But obviously, you know, next to food and perhaps really the whole purpose of food is the water. Hydration is ultimately the fundamental story of biology on the planet. The reason biology works, whether you're a leaf or you know a root system or a human or an earthworm, is because water works. And so your child, as an autistic experience, in the current nutritional environment, is going to be profoundly dehydrated because of the leaky gut, because of the leaky brain, because of all of these things. And when I say leaky gut, leaky brain, and all these things, it makes it sound like oh my gosh, the child has all these biologic disorders. No, those are the condition of the result of a poor diet over three generations that have been seeding antibiotics both through their physician experience and their food experience, the antibiotics in their, their animal meats, the antibiotics in the soils, the herbicides, all of this. And so the antimicrobial accumulation event that's happened over the last three generations has put us at this massive deficit of biologic intelligence, which leaves us with the leak. And so leaky gut is not the result of autism. Autism is the result of the human journey. Autism is a necessary dewiring of the human experience so that we can create a new human experience. The disorders associated with autism, leaky gut, leaky brain, chronic neurologic, you know, disruption of the autonomic nervous system, pandas, all these things, all of that is a description of what we've done biologically to damage the child's environment. And so when we build back a healthy environment with the child, 
somebody like Rai starts to be able to be in, come in and out of their multidimensional state without suffering. And that's my mark of a healed child. My mark of a healed child with autism spectrum disorder is never, oh, they're meeting milestones like normal kids. No, if you actually measure that, that would be a horrifically stupid thing to want, you know? No, like the average eighth grader in America doesn't know how to add, like doesn't know how to do multiplications only. Uh, we are failing on so many fundamental milestones as a population. So let's not make these kids normal. For goodness sakes, let's keep these kids extra normal. And so the extra normal, extra extraordinary, you know, childs that, yep. that you guys have birthed, if you can start to define success in these children through the food you, environment you create, through the water environment you create, through the nutrient you know, availability, through the breath of the air that they interact with, and the neurologic inputs, you will free that child into their quantum experience without suffering. And so let's let that be the new metric for healing of, of autism. Is your child suffering right now? No, actually, they're really focused and peaceful over in their little sector of the room. And when they jump up and stim and you run across the room and yell and, and pound the wall, that's not necessarily them suffering. Let's ask that question deeply. Are they actually suffering in that moment or are they releasing a tension that they feel in the room? Whose tension are they really releasing? Are they releasing their own or did they have to go do that to pull you out of your head game of we're almost bankrupt. We have no more options. We have this or that. And they can feel that tension mounting in you as a parent. And so they're going to have to show up again to break that paradigm and say, there's something right now. And that something is me. <laughs> That's what that child is, is almost doing in the STEM moment of it's me. Are you paying attention, mom? Are you paying attention, dad? Are you paying attention, grandma? No, I was, I was pulled into my head for a moment. I wasn't paying attention for a moment, but I'm here and I'm sorry you're suffering. And the kid's point might be, I'm not suffering. What are you talking about? You were the one suffering. I just pulled you out of it again. Stop doing that. <laughs> you know, and so is that the journey that we can all take? So maybe I'd be interested to hear from you, Cass or, or Len, just either one of you, you know, when we've spent time together in clinic, instead of focusing on Rye, but focusing on each of you, what has that journey been like? What does that look like in your experience? It's taken a long road to get there because it was like, okay, I just have to be that martyr to help my kid. And then I realized the more that I take care of myself, the better I show up to be that better human that I'm here to be. And I can support everyone in a, a better way because I am such a better giver than I am a receiver. Um, and I think that's just part of working on my own trauma on how I was raised because it's so important. But that is when you're able to do that, that is when it's game changer for the family, truly. When the mother, or at least for in my case, when I felt supported, that's when everything changed. So when you laid me on that table like and said, okay, work on that stress, and did my kids feel it? Absolutely. Yeah. Did I feel it? Absolutely. Did Len feel it? Yes. So it has that you know ripple effect that just um, is beautiful. Yeah. No, and we see it countless examples every day that they're feeding off our energy. They're feeding off our thoughts, which is why anytime I go to judgment of my son, especially, or my daughter of something that they're doing that I consider wrong, if I start to judge it, I can feel them receive that energy and it's not taking them in a place I'd like to help guide them. Yeah. So it all comes down to the inner work and never about being perfect because that's impossible, but it's about just bringing more awareness and as quickly as I can now to pivot <laughs> to acceptance, love, 
and that's a practice, but it's something I know we're both making an intent to get better and better at. And it's been interesting on our journey too, because when we started, Rye physically got sick. So for us, we knew that there was a medical component. And this is where our kids being so energetic, where medicine failed him, homeopathy was his missing link. But then once we got his body, his biology kind of back in... um, equilibrium. That's when really it was all about how my, especially for me, my non-judgment of him was that connection where finally when he was about four and a half or five, he took me on a journey and I just graciously surrendered and went. And that is when I passed his test test that I was truly with him. Like I had his back, I wasn't judging and I was completely loving and that changed everything. That's when he felt safe and that's when he felt connected. Um, and so the more that I can not judge myself and just love myself, they feel that. Beautiful. I think that's so important for you know, mothers in particular, but I think fathers too, very, very much trapped in the peer pressure of being a parent of autism. Because if you are spending time outside of the Western medical paradigm that says there's nothing you can do. <laughs> if, you, if you move beyond that and then go to TACA or you go to Autism One or you go to one of these big communities, there's a trap there of, oh my gosh, we have to be one of those families that cure autism or, or heal our child with autism. There's you know all these families walking around saying, my child was autistic and now they're not. Well, first of all, as a physician, I've never seen that. That child, again, is never normal. They are always hyper normal. And so to say that you have cured autism is to, again, disempower the child's journey, I think, on some level of saying, no, we're not here to cure this condition. The condition is a superpower when they are not suffering. And so if you instead walk those halls and say, we are learning how to make our children suffer less by suffering less ourselves, that's the journey I wish was shared in the halls of Taka and everything else is we shouldn't define you know, success as neuronormal, like, you know, whatever that is, like, is that soul now at a peaceful state of flow, knowing they are in their highest vibration, doing their highest work, changing human constructs, changing human consciousness through their connectivity, through their grace for the paradigm that exists, that they're forced into. We need to make sure that when we set out, we are not setting out to cure something. Uh, we can't cure cancer because it's not it's a symptom not not a disease and so when we set our minds to cure something we immediately give far too much power to the word and not enough understanding to the context in which that symptom is occurring the context of autism needs to heal not autism the context and so you guys are working on that and you guys are a great example of a family that is changing the context in which autism occurred in your life right and if you change the context, change the narrative around that journey, you guys achieve what you have achieved. Yep. yep. Yeah. And when we left, you know, originally we started out to defeat it. Like we wanted to, we were part of that whole defeat autism. And then when we realized it wasn't about defeating anything, it was about loving our son and connecting with him because that connection was our ultimate goal. And, you know, as we've been able to connect with each other and as a family, that's where he's been able to truly blossom and be able to share his gifts and truly shine. One of the most idiotic things I think I've ever said just now, I guess, kind of judging myself was when I made the statement that I love my son, but I hate the autism. And the reality is autism that diagnosis was a part of like, there was something, it was a part of him. He was being who he was. They just gave it that label. 
and so that was a big shift for me to kind of say see how kind of how much that didn't make sense and then it did it became all about just forming a bond and being better connected and a lot of the other things that we really did try to intervene on was just simply about letting his own body's natural ability to heal yeah to, for us to stop doing shit that was getting in the way of that and just to let him be healthy and be as connected and as progressive wherever he wanted to go. So, but we it, also didn't use the diagnosis as like so when Rye was potty trained at four and a half, like it wasn't like okay, my kid's gonna be in diapers forever. I met a mom who had triplets that were eight, and I was like, hell no, I'm gonna get over my own fear. I'm going home right now. We're gonna potty train, and within two weeks, I did it. But a lot of this journey is parents <laughs> overcoming shit that scares them to truly support their kid how their kid needs to be supported. Yeah, we all throw roadblocks in our own way, and it just takes an intent to become more aware of them and then to do what you can. Uh, but yeah, so much of it, the shift was away from fixing him and more on just us doing our own inner work and just being accepting and loving. And it truly did just come down to that with no goal to drop the expectations. I can tell you just, you know, what that's looked like from my you know vantage point. I only get to see you guys every you know few months or whatever in clinic and but when I first met you, Len, there was a very uh, common male archetype happening, which was you had put on your armor and you were going to battle. No doubt. And what you were trying to extract from me at every visit was more arrows to put your quiver. You wanted more weapons to attack with. And you had a beautiful coat of armor. I mean, you had really worked on that coat of armor. It was going to protect you from everything as you forged ahead and just like took down the freaking barriers for your son and everything else. And you were looking for weapons. And on the other side, Cass, I, I, I see in you, when, when I met you, you had the shield. Uh, it, was, it was not a coat of armor because it wasn't on you. It was something that you were holding out in front of you. You had this shield and you were, you were protecting Rye from the world and yourself, ultimately. And uh, you couldn't heal because you were spending all of your energy holding the shield up against this perception that the world was pounding on the shield only to find out that you were pounding on the world with the shield and all the energy was you, you know, pushing the world doesn't care if you're here or not. Like 7 billion souls are going to, they don't care that you like have a shield or don't have a shield. They're not trying to push against your shield. They're not trying to attack your shield. As parents, we tend to like go flail that thing against the wall and say, Oh my gosh, I'm so exhausted. And so you were both exhausted when I met you, you were uh, on the brink of a collapse. I think, you know, at individual levels and as a family, which all of us have been there and, and all of us are going to go back to again. We tend to do this again to ourselves for different reasons. Uh, more things will come in to put us in that thing. What I've seen unfold is a steady taking off of the armor limb and a steady, steady taking uh, down the shield cast. And I'm just uh, really, really impressed with the gentleness that has emerged from the two of you. And uh, the joy that our clinic has when you guys come in now, like our, our whole staff lights up when you come and we feel nurtured by the experience as much as you might feel nurtured by the experience because you two are now effusing a much different energy and you don't anymore feel like you're being attacked by the world and you realize that you didn't have to protect the world from Rye and, or him from the world. In fact, uh, Rye came to touch the world and uh, he couldn't have done it with the shield and the armor up. And so through your guys is putting down the diagnosis, putting down the words, starting to love your son, starting to be tender to the possibility that he was the teacher, that he would show you the way. 
that there was nothing wrong with him or, or his situation, which is really interesting. I love that you stopped hating autism. That's the first journey into every patient in my clinic with cancer is helping them let go of the fear and anger towards their cancer and find out it's the best teacher they'll ever have. And this is the biggest gift you will ever have because it's the only thing that will ever really let you bring to priority a complete reorientation of your life. When somebody is suddenly faced with a, a cancer diagnosis, they finally will quit the job that's been killing them for 30 years. They will finally quit the relationships that have been abusive and, and manipulative and codependent for 30 years. It takes something that big to change completely. And you guys stopped being angry at the thing that came to change you completely and you accepted it and are every day now learning from it. And the beauty is that winning is not a destination. Winning is the journey and being vulnerable to the journey. And so you guys are, are winning the journey. There is so much to celebrate and no, but your thoughts, uh, and just perspective is so uplifting for us. And we just really hope that anyone listening can identify with a lot of what Cass and I were saying. Cause I think how we were operating with the shield and, and my arrows and all that is, is pretty common where how people show up. And, and the, the exciting thing is that there is another way of operating a different, just a different way of being. And it's possible and accessible to anyone. If you at least, you know, have that intention of changing yourself and seeing things differently. Right. It is a journey and you definitely have to shed and that shedding can be really challenging. So it's like you have to be ready to work on yourself to really support your child. Honestly, Dr. Zach, time with you is always a gift. So thank you. And we're just so excited that people can hear your perspective if they're not able to get to clinic and to see you in person. Uh, your thoughts, uh, are, I think, are really going to land so powerfully with people who are on a similar journey to us. So again, thank you so much for, for taking the time with us today. Yeah, we truly appreciate it. All that you do. Thank you. Well, thank you for the two of you. Thank you for the gift of your whole family in my life. And thank you, everybody listening, for the gifts that you are uh, to humanity, the brave journeys that you guys have chosen as parents, grandparents, siblings to uh, an autistic child. And uh, the more we can love and learn and see, uh, the more we'll learn. And uh, the beauty will keep unfolding and humanity will change for it. So thank you for being on purpose as, as parents of autistic children. Thank you, Len and Cass, for your courageous leadership and vulnerability and sharing at this level with uh, the global community. I think it will be generations to come that we will actually understand the impact of a conversation like this. So uh, kudos to both of you. Want to discover your top autism parenting blind spot? Take our free quiz today. Go to allinparent.com slash go.